0: Outside of China, the World Health Organization is weighing in today on the new H7N9 bird flu. A WHO spokesman in Geneva says despite the growing number of cases, so far there is no sign of a sustained spread of the virus among people. Meanwhile, the Centers for Disease Control here in the U.S. says it also has no evidence to suggest that the virus is being transmitted from person to person. Still, the CDC says it started work on a vaccine for the new flu, just in case it's needed. It's that just in case that's got some observers of global public health paying close attention to what's going on in China. Among them is Lori Garrett, a former journalist who's now a senior fellow for global health at the Council on Foreign Relations in New York. Lori, you've been watching the crisis unfold and thinking publicly about various scenarios of how it happened and where it might lead. How concerned are you that we might be seeing the early days of something serious here?
1: This has all the hallmarks of potentially turning into a new and quite striking pandemic of influenza. I say hallmarks, that doesn't mean it will. It doesn't mean it won't. It just says that all the pieces are falling into the kind of worrisome places Mm. uh, that we keep an eye on at this stage of an outbreak. What
0: are those pieces? What are those hallmarks that you're seeing?
1: Well, we know it just jumped from another species to human beings. It may very well have jumped through an intermediary species. So we know for sure now from the Chinese that um, a range of bird species, including pigeons, ducks, uh, doves, have been infected and carry the virus, but without any ill effect to those animals. So that's what's termed silent infection. It makes it very hard to control because you don't know which animals are sick and how people directly got exposed to the sick animals. Then there were was this huge die-off of some 20,000 plus pigs in the region. Um, and surely there were more dead pigs that did not float down rivers visibly, but were buried or burned back in the original farm sites further upstream. And we only have information on 34 of those carcasses, meaning the Chinese say they did not find the virus in those 34 tested carcasses. But genetic experts are looking at the sequences of the viruses that have been found so far in human beings, and they say, look, there's definitely mammalian markers in here. This virus has been through some kind of mammal before it got to humans, because it's reasonably well adapted to human cells. It's not just a bird virus anymore. And that's what is worrying. Whenever you have what's called a zoonosis, that moment when a virus jumps from one species to another, it typically hits the second species, meaning human beings, really hard. Our immune systems haven't seen it before. We don't have an instant appropriate immune response to its exposure, and that leads to over-response, which I think is what's happening with a lot of these patients. When we hear that they have total organ failure, multiple organ failure throughout their bodies, that is an over-responsive immune system. That is a human being seeing something that that human's body has never seen before.
0: Remind us if you Uh, would uh, about other uh, epidemics that have jumped between species, between uh, avian species and uh, mammal species?
1: We don't have a lot that have jumped directly from birds. They tend to jump through some other mammal first. A good example would be SARS. As best as can be determined at this time, 10 years ago, exactly at this time in China, We had the famous cover up where the Chinese government was denying the presence of the SARS virus as it was rapidly spreading all over the country. Uh, And I was there in the middle of it. I remember it well. And what we know now is that that was a bat virus from a remote species of fruit bats that are usually very harmless and have nothing to do with human beings. But through a series of events, the fruit bats. Viruses that car- are carried harmlessly to the bats passed to an intermediary species the civet and from civets uh, Which are eaten as live animals uh, killed just before? preparation in the kitchen uh, There was passage to human beings and that sparked the whole SARS epidemic um, And we have any number of similar outbreaks where the bat is the original host such as Ebola Marburg Hendra, Lyssa, Nipah, the list is very long. Um, As far as birds go, I mean, almost all influenzas are, at their root, bird viruses. They are naturally carried by aquatic migratory birds, such as ducks and swans and geese, and usually harmlessly to the birds. And at some point, there will be passage from birds to either other domestic birds, like chickens, or to intermediary species like pigs. And that's why we see new flus every year in the world. Uh, but usually, you know, the vast majority of the new flus that emerge every single year in the world have no effect on humans at all. They never actually get to us, or they're fairly mild. Now, that's not mild if you happen to be an 85-year-old in a nursing home uh, with underlying cardiac condition it may kill you, but for the vast majority of people, it's an annoyance that makes you sick for a week. Um, What we're seeing now is markedly different. This is a flu that so far, if we believe the numbers, has put every single one of its human uh, victims in critical care and killed six out of 16 of them so far. I mean, you
0: kind of went over this uh, in your uh, uh, article for Foreign Policy earlier this week, but it's just, I mean, the the idea that bats, pigs, swans, chickens, pigeons, and humans could share this. I mean, for a lot of people, that's not going to compute.
1: Right, and I understand why people are confused. You know, out there in nature, viruses are very opportunistic uh, elements of basically packaged genetic material. In the case of flu, it's RNA not DNA, and it's just a package of RNA running around looking for as many ways to infect cells of as many types of species of creatures as possible so that it can reproduce itself. That's its mission, if you will, Uh, and it is a constantly mutating virus. Flu mutates more than almost any common virus we're exposed to in the world, and so it's it's constantly changing in order to adapt to whatever cell type the virus finds it in. So if it finds itself in a, f- a bird cell, it has it produces proteins based on its genetic material that are appropriate to bird cells, including you can think of it as a doorknob that you turn to open a door to get inside of a cell. These are the receptors, and every single flu virus has a limited range of, if you will, the hand, a protein shaped like a hand that can turn that doorknob and open that door and infect cells. And usually that hand is shaped appropriately for a specific species at the other end. It can open the door for chicken cells or it can open the door for pigeon cells. What's very rare, fortunately, but very dangerous when it happens, is for a virus like this H7N9 influenza to, after millions and millions and millions of years of circulating on the planet, as exclusively adapted to open the doors on bird cells, suddenly, sometime in March, adapted to be able to open the doors on human cells. That's what makes this a scary moment.
0: And, and the evidence is there to prove what you just said.
1: Oh, absolutely. This is irrefutable. We have all the genetic sequences posted. This has been scrutinized by any number of top flu virologists. And, you know, this is all very well understood and well known. Now, the big unknown, and this is the huge unknown at the moment, is what I call the denominator problem. So whenever you look at a ratio and you say, oh, this virus is so dangerous, it kills X percent of people, what you're at, you're, you are you're need to know is not just how many people actually died, let's say a number of five, but what's the denominator, meaning how many people got infected and did not die, mm. perhaps even had no symptoms, got infected and their body handled it just fine. Um, so... Obviously, if that dead number, 5, has a denominator of 5, then you're really scared because that's a 100% kill rate. But if that patient death rate of 5 has a denominator of 10,000, you have a very different situation. This is very important because in 2009, when the H1N1 swine flu exploded in Mexico, initially we knew about it because of this flood of critically ill patients that poured into Mexico City emergency rooms. And it looked like a hideous flu. It looked like the great one was coming. Uh, But I kept saying back then, look, we don't know what the denominator is. How many Mexicans are infected and they're just sitting at home with a headache and, you know, a fever? Well, as it turned out, we initially overestimated the severity of that one. And once the numbers started to really get counted on the denominator, we realized the denominator was enormous, that for every death we had tens of thousands of infections. So the mystery in this China situation, and it's a huge mystery, is that so far they have a denominator equal to the number of cases, meaning they haven't found any silent infections. They haven't found any mild flu cases. Now, the question is, how are they looking? What are the test methods that are being applied? What kind of a blood test or what have you are they using? They say they've interviewed every one of the close contacts of every identified case. So for all 16 cases known at this moment, as we speak, uh, you know, they are some 300-plus family members, close associates, co-workers, neighbors that have been interviewed? Have they actually blood tested them? Well, you know, we thought they were doing blood tests, and we're only finding out now that actually they're relying on self-reporting. Now, this is really important because self-reporting is a very different story in China compared to America. If Local health authorities called you up in Los Angeles or Boston or wherever you're sitting right now and asked you, Excuse me, you know, one of your neighbors has an illness. And we want to know if anybody in your family has had a fever, a headache, what have you. You're likely to answer appropriately and be a little distressed. Um, in China, because of the history of mass quarantines, uh, especially during the SARS epidemic, when people were essentially put in quarantine captivity for weeks. Mm. And cut off from their families, everything. Um, Doing phone surveys or even coming around to their home and asking, hey, have you had a fever lately? Well, I don't think people are going to say, yeah, lock me up for three weeks. Sure. So I think we're getting a gross underestimate of how many people have had mild or asymptomatic infections out there. And therefore, we really don't know the scale of this problem at all. So,
0: Laurie, how how satisfied are you with assurances that this new flu uh, so far doesn't seem to be spread from human to human?
1: I'm not satisfied with that at all. We have a family cluster that doesn't make any sense to me. In Shanghai, where three members of the same family got pneumonia at exactly the same time. Two of them died of it. One did not. Um, The one that did not is still being observed in critical care. Only one tested positive with their test for this flu. Well, what the heck caused coincidental pneumonia in the other two? I'm not satisfied with that explanation. So, Laurie,
0: the last time we spoke with you uh, on this program was a couple of years ago, uh, soon after the Fukushima nuclear disaster in Japan. At the time, you were cautioning against the kind of hysteria that was starting to spread here in the U.S. and elsewhere about the danger of radiation. Um, what's your message for people here now with this uh H7N9 bird flu?
1: I don't think there's any cause for concern for Americans at this moment. We want to keep a close eye on it. We want to know that our public health authorities are keeping a close eye on it. My real concern, if this does become pandemic, if it does indeed evolve into the next big flu, is that we've had significant cuts in all our public health services, state, state, local, federal, and now with sequestration. We have serious cuts at the federal level and at the CDC. This is not the time to be tightening our budgets and worrying about penny pinching if we're going to face a pandemic. And that, I think, is something that we should be having some political dialogue about right this moment, rather than waiting until Lord, help us, you know, a real, true, virulent pandemic is on our shores. And everybody starts saying, well, Boston has no money. Sorry, but Miami's out of cash. Then what do we do?
0: Laura Garrett, Global Health Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations in New York. Thank you.
1: Thank you.